HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. There, you're listening to Eat Your Words and Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. You guys, it is the Sunday before Thanksgiving, which means you should probably get started preparing or thinking about at least what you're going to make for the big holiday feast. Um, I am really thrilled because we have a huge Bible of a book that has come out uh, this fall. It's right in front of me. It's called The Food Lab. It's written by J. Kenji Lopez Alt, who's on the phone right now from San Francisco. How are you, Kenji? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks. Um, so first things first, actually, um, you lived in New York for several years. Just wondering how you're enjoying uh, the Bay Area for a change. <laughs> it's, it's great out here, actually. Um, you, you know, the, the weather's nice. It's mm-hmm. nice to have more space. Um, the dogs love it. Uh, the, the only downside is, is that, you know, you can get really, you can get good, good pizza here, but you can't get good, bad pizza out here. Which you is can't like, get... Which is something that New York is great at. You know, you can just, you can walk into a slice shop and spend a couple bucks and get, like, a good slice of not-so-great pizza. But, like, mm. out here, the bad pizza is really bad, <laughs> um, which is, you know, it's hard to get a casual slice out here. That's the thing I'm missing with. That's really funny. Yeah, there's no middle ground. There's no, yeah, it's just Yeah, it's either good, good or terrible. Or terrible. <laughs> um, well, um, you know, maybe you have some tips for that in, in the food lab. Um <laughs> it's a ginormous book, I gotta say. Congratulations! It is a beast of <laughs> a book, um, and it is also. I think uh, all, all books should be judged by judging quality by their weight. <laughs> right, that would be a very scientific uh, measure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this was born out of your long-standing food column on Series Eats, James Beard mm-hmm. award-winning one that is. So I guess it's sort of like a blog to book. Uh, um, nominated, nominated, not never won. Oh, got it. But, well, 
hey, never know, coming up soon, <laughs> or in the yeah, spring. Maybe Yeah, so, um, yeah, well, I mean, why did you decide to turn this into a book form? Did you just find so many discoveries that you're like, damn, I nailed it, like, we need to collect the best <laughs> hits, or... <laughs> No, you know, there's a couple reasons. So, you know, part of it is that, you know, I think, I think a, a book is just an easier format to, for, for a collection of information, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the, the, the food about it, the column, each column on its own is sort of self-sufficient, but it's difficult to, to engage a reader for a long period of time. And I, and I think, you know, when, when someone decides to sit down and read a book, like, you're in a very different mindset than when you're reading an article online. Yeah. You know? Um, and, I, and I find that people are much more willing to be engaged when they know, like, all right, I'm going to read a book, that means I'm going to set aside, like, the next hour or two hours or whatever it is, um, and that's all I'm going to be doing right now. Whereas when you're reading online, it's like, it's like oh, here's a nice, nice link. I'll read the story, and I'll jump back to what I was doing before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just a very different mindset. So I think, I think people learn better, still learn better from reading from books. Um, at least, you know, if you want to get deeply into a subject. And I just thought that, you know, this is a subject that's sort of worth deeply getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, with a book, you can kind of guide people a little bit better than you can online. Whereas, you know, online people can jump back and forth between recipes and techniques and all these different things. Um, with a book, uh, you know, it's written to be read from beginning to end. Um, and, of course, you can still jump around in it if you want to do a specific recipe. But, you know, there's lessons in it that you learn at the beginning that apply throughout the entire book and it kind of builds on itself. So it's, it's just a different format, you know, and mm-hmm. I thought... I thought if I'm going to be, if I'm going to do like a major work, it should be in book format. Yeah. Well, I per- personally, um, well, for one thing, I really like that with a book, you can get it all splattered too in a way that I don't want to with my computer right, <laughs> when right, it's around right. the kitchen. They, yeah, that's a technological <laughs> barrier. You know, I, I think people say they like to cook in the kitchen out of book. Yeah. I think I think the reason they do is not it's not just because of like a um, something you know something magical about a book. I think it's just because we still it's a technological barrier we haven't mm-hmm. reached yet that. It's still not that convenient to use an iPad or an iPhone or whatever in your kitchen and risk getting it flooded with yeah. But I think that's something that will probably solve. You know, within a few years, yeah. we'll have a device that is really great for the kitchen, but we just don't have it yet. Totally. Um, well, I thought it was really cool that you know, for one of the most popular food writers, um, which you are, and um, uh, you know, especially in like this generation of, I, you know, I sometimes meet bloggers and. Uh, blogger wannabes and a name that comes up around when people ask for like who their idols are is yours just just so you know um very cool um but i thought it was really cool that you've written troves and troves of recipes online but not so much about yourself so in the introduction you talk about why and how you know you got into food and um and how you know you're you come from a family of scientists and uh you know your father was a a a uh, micro microbiologist, and your dad was yeah, a chemist. Yeah, and actually, he corrected me on that. It, it, he's actually an immunologist. Um, a what biologist? But, um, but uh, close enough, I think, for, for most, okay. most people to understand. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but yes, yeah, so I come from. I came from a yeah science background. You know, I was when I was a kid. Um, it was all science, all math and science, all the time, and, and music. My, you know, I had a Japanese mother who made me start playing violin when I was three mm-hmm. years old. Um, so it was you know violin. Math and science. I hear you. Um, and uh, and it was that way up until college. Um, and so yeah, I was going to be a scientist, um, and so- I went to an engineering school. Um, but then I kind of, I kind of, I don't know, I kind of burned out on it. Or I realized more that you know it, it wasn't that I didn't like science; it was just that lab work um, I found really boring. Um, I, I just you know the, the idea of working in biology lasted my whole life. Mind numbing to me. So um, yeah, so I, I left. 
I left biology and I kind of just accidentally fell into cooking. You know, it was like I was looking for a summer job that had nothing to do with academics, and I just randomly walked into a restaurant that said they needed to cook that day. And I was like, okay, I can I can cook, um, even though I couldn't. Um, but you know, they just needed a prep cook, someone who could hold a knife and like slice oranges for the bar or whatever like I was doing those days. Um, but you know, yeah, and I loved I loved it. But from the moment I walked into the kitchen, I loved it. Just like the whole. Um, idea of feeding people, you know, and that's what Thanksgiving is all about. Also, you know, it's the, the idea of like just bringing people together over food and feeding people and making people happy. Like, and it's just a very sort of immediate feedback, um, which is, which is also I think something that people forget a lot at Thanksgiving. That like they get so nervous and, and worried about, about the turkey. People. Yeah. That yeah, is. and at the end of the day, like if, if you're getting if you're getting everyone in the same room and they're all sitting down, like then you basically done your job, right? Like that's 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 the point of food is to get people sitting down and hanging out together. Um, if it tastes good on top of that, you know, then that that's mm-hmm. the bonus point. But really, I think the point of food is to get people together. You know? Yeah, that's um, pr- it's pretty different from most other sciences, I guess. Or maybe not most, but <laughs> when you look at it that way. Yeah, food. I mean, there's a scientific approach to it. I wouldn't consider cooking necessarily a science, but um, there's definitely a scientific approach that you can take to it that can help you. Right. Um, and for, you know, science can be applied to anything, really. It's, it's, just, it's just a method of, of thinking, you know, and a, and a sort of organizing um, your thoughts about the universe. Yeah, well, um, you know, you, your subtitle here is Better Home Cooking Through Science, and I thought it was really right. interesting that you point out that, um, you know, throughout several, I guess, eons of cooking, we've thought of cooking as more of a craft or an artistic mm-hmm. endeavor rather than a science, and it wasn't really until, like, Harold McGee um, wrote, uh, you know, about the science and, you know, finding out these faults with preconceived notions around, I guess, searing, was mm-hmm. it, or something. Um, you know, it's really funny, because, like, do you think that, like, earlier writers that have really been, like, the, I guess, grandfathers or the founding fathers of food writing focus more on, like, the romance of food, or...? Um, not so much, well, some of them the romance, mm-hmm. um, but certainly some of them... The I'm thinking craft. of Briat you know, like, like Julie, like Julia yeah. Child was all about the craft of cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, that, that craft was a craft that was, was passed on from generation to generation, or from master to apprentice, or from, you know, grandfather to, to daughter, or to grand, grandmother to, to daughter, um, and it, it, was, it was a craft. It was something you learned at the foot of, your, at the foot of your grandmother. Um, and you copied what she did, right. um, or you copied what your chef did, or whatever it was, you know, and, and then that's, that became the way you did it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and that's very sort of different from the scientific approach, which is, you know, I want to understand why I'm doing it this way, and, and at the same time, you know, by understanding why, maybe I'll understand a better way to do it or figure out a better way to do it. And that's, that's sort of the approach that the column in the book takes, which is, you know, there are all these there are all these ways we do things, and some of them definitely work. Um, but you know, nobody really explains why they work the way they do. So we're going to figure out why they work the way they do. Um, sort of draw the roadmap, and then see if maybe we can find like a shortcut on that map, or maybe we can find like a destination we like better. You know, um, and that and that's sort of the point of the food lab is, is it's not about it's not about like debunking myths, right. which, you know, sometimes it's that's not the point of it. It's really just about understanding better and, and that's, the, that's the point of science as well it's just about understanding things better so that you have a better you know and I, I always like to liken science to a road map um, and you know you, you're trying to get from say New York to Boston and if you have a if you have a map you have one direction you know you have a very 
zoomed out Google Maps and you know that, all right, Boston's a little bit north of New York. If you zoom in a little bit closer, you can see, all right, well, here are the major highways. You zoom in even closer, you can mm-hmm. see the, the back roads and stuff. And, and the closer you zoom in, you know, the more details you can see and you can see, all right, well, there's this like, oh, here's this hot dog stand in Connecticut. Maybe I'll stop there on the way. And it just gives you more choices. You know, the more you know about a route, a path, a path to travel on, uh, the more choices you have as an individual and the sort of freer it makes. And that's the freer it makes you, and that's really sort of what science is about. It's about understanding the details and the inner workings of something so that you as a person have more choices. You know, it sounds kind of like um, putting cooking under a microscope, would you say? <laughs> Applying science to it. <laughs> you see all sides. Um, okay, I definitely want to talk about turkey because um, I know you okay. have a few te- techniques that look awesome. Um, but we're going to cut to a quick little commercial break. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network. This is my first season as a host, but at the Brooklyn Kitchen, we've been supporting Heritage Radio for many years, and I really believe in what Heritage does. It is a fantastic network that really highlights everything that is going on in food in America, from restaurant openings to farms uh, to my show, where I feature interesting people with interesting stories related to food. But Heritage is a not-for-profit. We don't make any money. Uh, Most of the hosts do this because we love to do it, and we really do need your help as listeners. We'd love to have you listen, whether you can give any money or not. The website will still be up. You can still stream your favorite shows. But if you do like the programs here on Heritage Radio, we really would encourage you to go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org, click on the beating heart in the upper right-hand corner, and give whatever you can if you drink coffee every afternoon while you listen to shows on Heritage, then maybe you can give us the cost of a cup of coffee once in a while. If you want to become a larger member, there's all kinds of great things you get if you become a member of the station and a larger supporter. So please join me, join the Brooklyn Kitchen, join our other great sponsors, and become a member. All right, we're back chatting with J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of Serious Eats and the new book, The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. How are you? Still there? Yeah, I'm still here. All right, awesome. All right, so um, let's talk turkey. Um, Okay. All right, so first of all... I have opinions on turkey. Yes. Which turkey to buy? What kind of turkey? Do you have a preference in that area? Yeah, like the type of turkey? I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. You know, um, turkey is one of those things where, okay, so, so part of it comes down to, to your, your ethical decision, you know, whether, whether you want to buy a bird that, was, that had a relatively good life or a bad life, and, and all, you know, <laughs> so, so part of it is an ethical decision. Um, but turkey is also one of those meats that um, actually does, there is a big difference um, between uh, sort of the, the mass market turkeys and the ones that are grown on smaller farms, the pasture-raised turkeys. You know, with, with some meats, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference, but with turkey, there, mm-hmm. there's like that sort of there's that sort of distinctive gamey turkey flavor. Okay. You know that that thing yeah. that makes it taste like turkey and not chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is actually with, with turkey, it's actually much greater when you have like a pasture raised bird. Um, yeah. So I, I tend to buy um, I tend to buy pasture raised turkeys, ones that have access to outdoors. Um, but but you know, generally, the, the the higher you go on the humane scale as far as turkeys go, um, 
the tastier they're going to be. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing you really want to watch out for is um, is to decide whether you're getting a enhanced turkey or a regular natural turkey. Um, yeah. So enhanced turkeys, and that would be like you know, like Butterball is probably the biggest maker of enhanced turkeys. Um, they come pre-injected with a brine solution. Okay. Um, so uh, you know, they, they can. They, the idea is that they're going to be really juicy, even if you overcook them. Um, but that brine, you know, that solution that they put in there, it kind of dilutes the turkey flavor. It makes mm-hmm. them taste like a brine. You know, it makes them taste yeah. like ham, a little bit hammy, like, um, as like opposed to really strongly turkey. Um, and I prefer my turkey meat to be like, you know, nice and dense and full of turkey flavor. So right. I generally buy buy a natural bird, and, and it'll be on the label. It'll say like it'll say enhanced it. with up to ten percent sodium solution or whatever. Um, just buy, you know, buy. I go for a natural bird and. So long as you're using a thermometer and you're really careful with monitoring your temperatures um, and don't overcook the turkey, um, it's going to be plenty juicy anyway. So you don't really have to worry about it drying out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, cool. and speaking of temperature, um, speaking of temperature, you, you definitely don't want to use the little pop-up thermometer. That no kidding. You sometimes come with. Yeah, because those things are those things are designed to pop at 180 degrees, um, huh. which is like really, really, really hot. You know, th- those things are basically designed for safety not to flavor. Um, um, but basically just to guarantee that every part of the turkey is cooked to safe temperature. Um, but if you have your own thermometer, you can you can monitor these things a lot better. Um, so I do recommend having a thermometer. Um, I would cook the breast uh, to no more than 150 degrees, uh-huh. um, which is about 15 degrees lower than what the, what the USDA recommends, what the government recommends. You definitely but, don't want um, a dry breast, yeah. Yeah, you don't want to go to 165 because it'll, it'll, it'll dry it out. Um, um, at 150 degrees, um, it's actually it's actually perfectly safe to eat so long as you let the turkey rest for about four minutes. Um, and this is also according to the USDA charts. Um, the pasteurized turkey, um, that is to kill all the salmonella and other bugs in there, um, mm-hmm. if it's at 150 degrees, it takes about four minutes at that temperature. Mm-hmm. So so long as you cook it to 150 degrees, take it out of the oven and let it rest before you carve it, it's going to be perfectly safe to eat and way, way juicier than... Um, than uh, if you take it all the way to 165, which is what some people recommend. Yeah, gotcha. Well, that's really good to know. And also with those pop-up things, I've heard, you know, sometimes they don't work and you're just waiting there yeah. and your turkey is yes, exactly. cooking to death. <laughs> so never rely on those. Uh, that that never, would be a yeah. tough one. <laughs> uh, okay, so brining. They're, they're the pop-up hmm. timers are good for telling you when you should have gone back like half an hour and taken the turkey out. Oh, man. Okay, good for retrospect. <laughs> Uh, and wishful thinking and misery. Um, so, uh, brining, this like really took off um, several years ago and it's a trend. Everyone's brining, brining overnight. Right. Uh, should um, we do that with turkey? I don't, I don't brine. Yeah. Um, and I don't recommend brining. Um, so, so, brining, uh, it, it started, I, I think it became popular in the U.S. after Chris Illustrated wrote about it, maybe 10, 12 years ago, something like mm-hmm. that. That's when it started to pick up. Um, and. <clears throat> So brining is, yeah, you basically soak your turkey in a saltwater solution overnight. Um, some people will, like, add some spices or vegetables or whatever to that solution. But the idea is always the same, and and, um, and the idea is basically that the salt in the brine uh, will actually dissolve some of the meat proteins in the turkey, uh, a protein called myosin. Mm-hmm. And once that protein is dissolved, uh, the muscle fibers loosen up a little bit. So, first of all, they'll, they'll absorb some of the water from that brine. Mm-hmm. And then, more importantly, as the turkey is cooking... Uh, it doesn't squeeze as tightly, so that water stays inside the turkey. Mm. Um, so you end up with a turkey that's juicier. But the problem with the brine is that the liquid that you're adding to that turkey is just water. So you're basically watering down your turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you use a more flavorful liquid, like if you add spices to your liquid or if you use broth or cider or something like that, um, 
there's an effect called salting out, which which is basically that um, as things are moving into the turkey muscles, um, salt is a much smaller molecule, and because it um, and because it has a, a charge to it, um, or because it's a dipole, that is, it has a, a you know a positive end and a negative end, um, it, it selectively moves into the turkey um, before the other molecules do. So actually, many those flavorful compounds, even if you're using a, bro- a broth to brine your turkey in, um, they don't actually make their way into the turkey. So they really just play the surface. The only thing getting into the turkey is water and salt. Mm. Um, so you end up watering down your turkey. So what I actually recommend doing is called a dry brine, um, mm-hmm. and that's where you where you take salt. Um, you rub it over the surface of the turkey, um, and actually, if you use a little bit of baking powder in that salt as well, it can it can actually enhance the effect of cooking the skin. Wow. Um, but you basically you rub it over the turkey, um, and you let it sit for at least a night, and you know, really up to three nights um, okay. covered in in the uh, refrigerator. I w- wait, so Kenji, and, I would um, wait. Sorry, it's a, it's, at, at, sorry. Okay. At this point, I'm afraid that you're, I'm going to cure it. Is that going to happen, or is that what we're um, going so, for? Yeah, it's a, it's a very, yeah, I guess you could call it like a very light cure um, okay. because it's, it's so short and the turkey's so big. Um, so, usually, yeah, you are you are essentially doing a very light cure. But, okay. but what happens is it's sort of a similar effect to what happens with the brine, which mm. is that the salt, it's initially going to draw out a little bit of the moisture from inside the turkey, um, but then it's going to dissolve in that moisture um, and form like a super concentrated brine right on the surface of the turkey. Oh, um, yeah. And then that brine is going to dissolve muscle proteins in the same way that like a big bag of brine would. So the salt is going to slowly work. Salt and water are slowly going to work their way into the turkey. Um, sorry, the salt and the turkey juices are sort of going to work their way mm-hmm. back into the turkey. Um, and over the course of a few days, the salt works its way down, like you know, maybe a centimeter or so. Um, so that outer layer of the turkey um, is protected from overcooking in the same way that it would be if you brined it. Except you're you're not watering it down. Um, it's all the sort of turkey's natural juices that are left in there. Nice. So when you when you when you roast a turkey that's been dry brined. Um, you're gonna. It's gonna. It's gonna lose about ten to twelve percent less moisture than if you roast a turkey that's unbrined, like a totally natural turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a regular brine will get you about fourteen percent more moisture. So it's a very little difference between a dry brine and a regular brine. Um, but the dry brine has the advantage of having much better flavor. Okay. Um, it's also it's also easier to do because you don't have to deal with like a bag or a cooler full of water. It's like you just all you're doing is salting your yeah, turkey. Yeah, sounds it back way easier. It is, yeah. a lot of trouble. So I got to ask, though, does either method, do they have an effect on how much uh, pan drippings you get? Because I'm, I'm always like, I need more, like, you know, for the gravy. Um. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do. Um, so, yes, honestly, because the moisture is staying inside the turkey, less of it is coming out, so you don't mm-hmm. get as much dripping. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so but, but what I recommend for gravy um, is actually so all right. So the method I recommend for roasting uh-huh. your turkey is is batch topping it. Um, so you you would cut the backbone out um, and then lay the whole turkey flat. And we can get into the reasons for that no. in a minute. But one of the advantages is that gives you is that you have that backbone now. So you can you can separately like brown that backbone in a in a, in a Dutch oven, mm. add some stock, and make like a really flavorful gravy. More flavorful than you get out of just the drippings because you have like the entire backbone from the turkey there to work with. Um, so, you know, I, I'd rather have those juices stay inside the turkey where they're going to make it taste moist than, than have them come out and then sort of artificially add that moisture back, same flavor back to the gravy. Um, Brilliant. No, I'm a, fa- I'm a fan of spashcocking. I think a lot of people are just, you know, about the, you know, the appearance isn't the same, you know, as that Norman Rockwell painting. So that's right, <laughs> probably right, why. Right. Yes, looks, <laughs> like the turkey, a, a spashcock turkey, like, looks like it should be, like, on a... On a plum set instead of a plum screen <laughs> table. I'm saying it. Um, flavor before yeah, but, appearance. Yeah. Sorry, say it again? Oh, flavor before appearance then. <laughs> flavor before appearance, exactly. Yeah. 
Yes, that's, I mean, stop talking. I mean, the advantage it gives you is that, um, you know, with, with a regular whole turkey, when you're roasting it, um, you have you have the two types of muscle. You have the you have the slow twitch muscle, which is uh, the muscle in the legs, the dark meat. And slow twitch muscle is like the muscle that the turkey mm. uses for its entire life all the time. So it has a very high has very high blood flow, which is what makes it dark. Um, and it also has a lot of connective tissue. Um, so when you're roasting when you're roasting slow twitch muscle like leg meat, it has to come up to um, a relatively high temperature, like 165, 175 degrees, um, because you want that connective tissue to, oh, to break yeah. down, um, and that's what makes it. It breaks down as a gelatin. That's what makes it juicy. That's, mm. what, that's what keeps it juicy and tender. Um, on the other hand, there's fat switch muscle, which is the breast meat, um, and that's muscle that the turkey barely uses for its life, but it, it has there in reserve just in case uh, it needs to like flop away from an enemy or something like that. It's like it's like mm. a fight or flight muscle, you know. Um, and that's very low in connective tissue, low in fat, so tends to dry out very quickly. Uh, so breast meat, you don't really want to cook it beyond 150. Um, so you have two different types of muscle on the same bird, and when you roast it. Um, in a normal roasting pan, the way people would, um, and you keep it whole, and you kind of have the legs at the bottom and the breast at the top. Um, in a normal roasting pan, uh, the, the sides of that roasting pan come up pretty high, and they actually protect the leg meat from roasting very fast. Oh, that's um, true, so you're, yeah. You're, you're sort of making the problem even worse, because the breast meat is roasting faster than the dark meat. So by the time the dark meat is done, your breast is overcooked. And, you know, and that's why some pop-up pans will pop up at 180 degrees, is to ensure that your legs are done cooking as well. Um, Flash cooking the turkey solves that problem because it, it lays flat, um, and when it's spread out flat, the legs are thinner than the breast is, so they actually end up cooking faster. Um, so by the time your breasts are up to 150 degrees, your legs are going to be at like 170, mm-hmm. 175. Um, and, and there's other advantages. You know, one of the big advantages is that you don't need a, you know, you don't need a hundred dollar roasting pan, or you don't need to get one of those sort of foil things. All you need is a is a fifteen dollar jelly roll pan, like a, a baking sheet with a wire wrap. So Really cheap, totally reusable, much cheaper than a roasting pan, um, and it actually works better. Um, and you know, and then you also get a lot more crispy skin doing a scratch test um, because right. all that skin is on top, and all the fat and the juices are rendering out mm-hmm. to the turkey. Um, and let's so face you, it, it's just better all around, yeah. other than appearance. But and nobody, you know, I'd rather have good tasting turkey than, than pretty turkey. Totally, and nobody's going to eat that back of the turkey in the you know in the carving board anyway. So um, yeah, you're going to use it to make soup or whatever. So if you have that back. Um, you can use it to make your gravy, and your gravy is going to be, you know, much better for it. Mm-hmm. One of these days, I'm gonna. I swear, I'm gonna convince my family to let me try that. But <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so, what are you cooking this um, Thanksgiving? How are you doing your turkey? Uh, it's still a little up in the air, but I think um, so. We might we might scotch up it, or we might we might smoke it. But I think um, what we're doing this year. So I took a poll in my family whether we want how we wanted it done, uh, roasted, smoked, or fried. Uh-huh. Because I don't have a backyard, so I can fry a turkey. Um, and my my little sister said fried, and my older sister said smoked. So I think what I'm going to do, um, and I actually I just came out with a recipe for smoked turkey. So I've been yeah, it's your seats recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I have like I have like four or five smoked turkeys in my fridge right now, um, and I, and and I have like five quarts of stock that I made out of the smoked turkey body. Yeah. Um, so I have all the smoked turkey stock. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to cook down that smoked turkey stock so it's really concentrated and then inject it into a fresh turkey and then deep fry it. So it'll be smoky meat inside but deep fried outside. I think that's that's probably what we're going to do. I think that sounds really great. And I can't wait to hear more about it, uh, how it goes, (laughs) how it turns out. It sounds delicious. I'm hungry right now. Um, I think it'll be good. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing these insights. And, um, you know, it's always a pleasure to, to, to read your work and it's 
really just great to talk to you about it too. So yeah, you too. Yeah. All right. So um, that's about all we have, all the time we have for today. But check out the Food Lab on Serious Eats and in the book. And uh, we'll see you guys next week at Heritage Radio Network. Oh, I like the way you do. took it so slow and Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>